a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. In today's episode of Project Recovery, I came off of Suboxone and I was sicker than I've ever been. And I'd been through some terrible withdrawals. I I thought I was going to die. I don't know what was going on. After like two or three nights of zero sleep, I'm laying downstairs middle of the night and my brain starts short circuiting. I couldn't think straight. It would jump all over. I don't know what it was happening, but uh, I remember just thinking um, I I rolled off the, the couch on my knees and I said the most sincere prayer of my life. And I said, God, either kill me Let me die right now or let me get some sleep. Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley, and it's brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. Now, Dr. Matt, KnowYourScript has some questions that you should be asking your doctor when you go in there and get a prescription filled. Good idea. The first one is, how am I supposed to take it? Because I think, you know, a lot of times we want to get in and out. I mean, I know you're thinking of a... Uh, There's two ways to take it. <laughs> up and down. <laughs> right. right? No, but that that's a good... I think what they mean is probably more like frequency, time of day, you know, with food, without, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Are there alternatives? And now I know you've used this when you were having your son who got his uh, wisdom teeth pulled. Yeah. And uh, you said, is there something else that we could use besides this? Right. Are there alternatives? Is there risk for dependency and addiction? I think that's the classic one you need to ask. Because right. like our guest is going to tell us today, he got into his addiction on an honest way. And so if you, we know going in that there might be or there's some history in our family, that might help clarify it. Oh, definitely. I think a lot of people don't, especially when the doctor will say, sometimes they don't even tell you the name of the medication. They're just like, take this twice a day for pain. Da, da, uh-huh. da. Or if they give you the real name, you don't, you can't pronounce it Or anyway. if they prescribe you the generic name. or the Yeah, exactly. And so you have these, you don't know if it's what class, and you shouldn't have to know everything. So you just ask, is yeah. this This potential? one is, I, I found it really interesting is, what do I do if I miss a dose? Because, you uh-huh. know, in my head- We'll just double up the next double one. down. Yes. You know, that's the same way I drink beer. If one's good, two's better. Yeah. You know, yeah, so. That's uh, not really how these medicines work. But I don't know how it works when you miss it. That's dose. a great question to ask. And that's something you should ask your doctor. The last one, should I avoid anything while taking this medication? That's another great question. So these are all some questions to ask yeah. when you're sitting down. Am, and I, am I capable to, of doing my normal routine? Can I drive the car? A forklift? You no. Know, forklift, if you have one. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, you, you never know. I'd like to have a forklift. I think I'd use it a lot in my garage. For what? I don't know. Junk. I got junk. I wouldn't have to pick it up. I'm going to tell you what. Right after this, we're going to drug test you because that makes no sense. I still think I stand by my. I would love I've to have your a garage. Clip. It's one level. I know, but there's stuff a you can move around. Do your, would suffice. It's a regular garage. I agree. So, Doctor Matt, I've been kind of wrestling with something in my brain lately, uh, and it's and it's in due to the popularity of the show, in part. Yeah. We had a great guest on Sarah. and uh, it, Sarah Fry, she was amazing. And, uh, I mean, it, we got a lot of downloads. We got a lot of publicity. A lot of people sharing that. And so then we started talking with the powers to be here at KSL in Bonneville. And we were like, well, we want to get some bigger names to come in here and talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I would like to get some bigger names in here. And I think that does help the cause of getting recovery out to the world. Sure. So, you know, people tend to listen to to well-known public figures. Yeah, sure. But I maintain that our bread and butter on this show is the average person, the average person who's gone through addiction. I think it's great when you see someone like myself where, you know, where I've been and where I'm going, or you see someone like Ben Affleck or Jamie Lee Curtis or Robert Downey Jr. or Dax, you know, uh, Shepard. Talk about their... Their struggles with addiction, but because they're celebrities, they reach a lot of people. Sure. But I still go back to the lady who had beta fish fights in her garage. You know that, you know, her story is amazing. And that's the thing is, I don't care if you've been sober for one day or 30 years, you're a hero in my book. 
and yeah. it's amazing. Well, I think it's. I mean, we've had people like like uh, a dentist who Rod who, Gardner, you know, got caught up in in opioids, and you know, people who are just trying to make it at work or in college. So I think that's what's relatable to all of us. I mean, I don't really have any concept of what life would be like if I was a Robert Downey Jr. But the average person who's just going to work and providing for their family, that's a story that I can relate to, right? And that's kind of why uh, I wanted to start this podcast is because when I was sitting in recovery and I was sitting in our process group and there was 12 people around, there was 12 different people around that circle who were all addicts. There were Law officers from the Logan area. There were mothers from up on the East Bench. There were guys who were down on the West Side. There was guys who were at the gas station who who pump your gas uh, to the bank tellers or whatever. That's the real face of addiction. It's not just one person. The person that you see on Law and Order, you know, that you go, oh, that's there's an addict. Yeah. Or like even when I was doing acting in my younger years and I had long hair and both my ears pierced, every part I got called out on was party dude. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. But because that was the stereotype. Right. And I wanted to do this podcast to break the stereotypes because addiction does not discriminate. Anybody and everybody be- can, can become an addict. Oh, we've – yeah, definitely. And I think that's what's – the value of like our sponsor, Know Your Script, learning how to communicate about the medications and about, you know, hopefully beyond that, just in general in life about alcohol, drugs, any substance, uh, learning how to talk to – to people, open up, don't keep it in the dark. That's the only thing that's going to protect you. It doesn't matter how well-educated you are, how wealthy you are, what part of town you come from, uh, whether you're a physician or not. You know, you think they might know better. Nope, they can get anybody, right? We had an ER doctor who was working in the <laughs> ER that on his breaks was going down to the local park and scoring heroin and going back up and teaching classes and going into surgery. Right, right. I mean, that's that's how crazy it is. And, and I, we should emphasize he was a slave to the addiction at that point. Yes. You know, he wasn't wanting to do that. He no. didn't want to violate his oath of, of doing no harm. He wanted to be a good physician, but addiction had such a grip on him, as it does anybody, that it makes you make decisions that you would never normally make with a clear head. So many times in my early recovery, people would say, I can't believe you gave it all away. You know, you had everything. And I did have a lot. And I did. Uh, And I did end up giving it away. But it wasn't because I wanted to give it away. Right. You know, and people look at someone who gets a, a certain amount of celebrity status and that have the world right there in their hand and then it's gone. It's because nobody really talks about it and nobody knows the depths of addiction. And then once it grabs you, you're right. You do things that you normally wouldn't do. And there's so many times people are like, this sucks, man. We're paying for your partying. And I go, well, yeah, but I'm not really partying. I'm just trying to get to even. I'm just trying to get to a. a- well, that's the thing about addiction. Actually, um, uh, my mom and I were talking about this on the sidelines of a lacrosse game. Yeah. And my dad was listening and we were talking about, uh, I can't remember which guests it w- were from the show. And we, you know, I brought that up that, you know, these folks, when they get to that level that have come on the show and they're talking about some kind of pre rock bottom lifestyle, nobody's having fun. Nobody's partying. This is not a good time. Getting up with the shakes at, in the morning and having to drink some Jack Daniels just so you can shave. That's not fun. That's not freedom. That's the opposite. It's you are uh, addicted. You are a slave to that substance. It's a miserable way to live your life. And I don't think people who have had that experience or had it with a close family member really can understand how miserable your life is at that point. That's why I'm so grateful that we get to do this podcast. So right now, I'm going to take the time to say, if you know somebody, if you've got a story, if you feel like it should be showcased right here on the podcast, there's a couple ways you can do it. We've got a Facebook uh, page called Project Recovery Facebook page. You can reach out there. Casey Scott TV, you can find me on Facebook or uh, Matt Woolley. Uh, it's, yeah, something like that. Just it's probably it. my name. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, because yeah, this time you didn't have the podcast, right? Right. So that's what we want. If you got a story to share, hit us up. We'd love to have you on the podcast because I think it's the everybody's story that people can relate to. Definitely. And so, hey, coming up, we've got a great guest. He's going to talk about how his opioid addiction led him to doing things that he never thought he would be doing. He's got a very common name, but a very uncommon story. It's Steve Smith. He'll be our guest coming up next right here on Project Recovery. 
Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, more importantly, about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Stephen Smith. Is it Steve or Stephen? Steve. If you're in trouble from your mom, what is it? Stephen. Stephen. <laughs> yep. Do you have a middle name? Blaine. Did she say those three names a lot? Uh, yes. More than, uh, yeah, more than I wanted to, for sure. So, Stephen, uh, let's talk about your early childhood and kind of get the pre-story before your addiction took hold. Yeah. So, growing up, I grew up in Salt Lake City in a very normal Mormon household. Um, for those who are listening outside of Utah, what does a normal Mormon household look like? Yep. A lot of kids, a lot of structure. Uh, we filled our, our weeks with sports, family activities, and our Sundays were spent at church. So, you know, I have a great mom and dad. Uh, a lot of family time. A lot of family time, always together. You know, not just going to, like, my own games, but at, I, at my childhood's filled with memories of being at my siblings, you know, basketball, baseball, football, volleyball games. So, a lot of family time. Uh, my dad coached me in all of my sports. Uh, my mom was always there, you know, all the way through my career. So I played Little League um, high school and then played um, some college football. My dad d- didn't miss a game. So a lot of great family support, a lot of love at home. Just a, a pretty normal, you know, story from a kid from Utah. And off air, Dr. Matt, we were talking, and I want you to bring this up because I thought it was very insightful. Uh, about the first time you tried alcohol. Yeah, so I'll never forget the the experience I had. So we never talked about alcohol. We never talked about drugs in my household. The, I guess the only thing that I knew was we don't do them. You know, Smiths don't do drink or use drugs. And for the listeners, that's, that's the LDS um, perspective is that drugs and alcohol are never to be used. So alcohol isn't found in an active LDS home. And so I think a lot of families don't talk about it because they just assume, hey, that's the rule. We're not going to do it. Yep. And it's evil. It's bad. And, and it, yeah, it's definitely it's bad. bad. I think it's important to kind of uh, put a punctuation on the evil and it's bad because that's what we're told. It is evil. This is this is this is not good. And we just we, this is something we don't play with. But at 14, you find yourself at a kegger. That's right. Yep. I'm at my friend's house and. Um, his older brothers who were seniors in high school at the time, they have a keg there. Parents are gone. And before this, I had never even considered drinking alcohol. I fell to the peer pressure, um, drank a lot and don't remember much of that night at all. Um, and then waking up the next morning, I clearly remember I didn't feel guilty. I didn't feel shame. I didn't feel bad about what I'd done or what had gone on. I remember thinking, Everybody has lied to me because how can something that was that made me have so much fun got rid of every insecurity that I've ever felt about myself that it just disappeared? How can that be bad or evil? I think that is such a common experience, especially if you grow up in a household where alcohol is is. Uh, you know, off limits. It's given that taboo. It's a bad thing. I think you said something that I hear parents say a lot. We we just don't mess with that. You know, like that's the it, it is an evil bad thing. But then your story, you said every insecurity. How, how many people have we had on the show? How many people have I seen in the office where you're struggling with your own stress, anxiety, and insecurity management, and then you take a pill or then you take a drink and whoosh. I'm the man I've always wanted to be. 
And that, that feeling is so, re, I mean, just you want to chase that feeling. And so that must have yeah, that's been exactly part of your experience. It's exactly what I did. And then also the way my mind works is, okay, if, the, if this is the case with alcohol, what about other drugs? Because what I've else been, are they lying to me about? Exactly. That, that's exactly right. What else are, are they lying to me about? And so I went through the very experimental phase, um, tried all sorts of different drugs, and I never found a drug that I didn't like. Uh, I didn't necessarily like some of the um, consequences when I'd get caught, but I, I just remember f- uh, the thought in my head often that like my parents don't ju- they don't understand me. The only people that understand me are my friends, my my circle that we're out there doing the same things. They just don't get it. And why would they? They've never drank. They've never tried these things. Mm-hmm. And it just was a, a nasty spiral. Um, and then, you know, went through high school, went down to SUU to play football down there. Southern and, Utah University. Yep. Southern Utah University. Home of the Thunderbirds. Thunderbirds. Is that what they are? Yep. Nice. Yep. yep. And when I was down there, you know, the it, it's big in our culture when you're 19 to go on a mission um basically you just tell the church you know hey I'm, i want to go on a mission and tell people about this and um at that point in my life i i wanted nothing to do with the church but i, I had uh s- some scripture with me and i started reading it and i just remember feeling like i needed to change my life where i was going wasn't where i wanted to be and so i cleaned up my life um quit all drugs and alcohol and went on a Mormon mission to Germany for two years. Sehr gut. Sehr gut. Yep. And I think anybody who's listening, you've seen the white shirt name tag elders and sisters uh, are in any country everywhere, right? Yep, yeah. absolutely. And and that was good for me. I mean, that was the first time in a long time where my ego got put in check. You know, I thought I was uh, a big man on campus. I was a college football player and um, – and then I, I get over in a foreign country where I can't even speak the language and I've got a nerdy white shirt and tie on and people are yeah. calling me crazy every day. That'll humble you, huh? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Put me in my place. So I got back, went back down to Southern Utah, um, didn't have any problems uh, at first with drugs or alcohol, um, met my wife down there. We got married and- Did you go back to playing football? I did. Went back to playing football. And so um, that kind of that's where my addiction to opiates really started. I had a back injury and I remember I went to a doctor and they did the MRI and they looked at it and they, I had a herniated disc. And the first doctor I went to uh, told me, you know, your playing career should be over. Um, it's bad. Uh, we should operate on this. But that didn't uh, – football for me at the time was um, – It's not what you wanted to hear. It was – and I, so I went to another doctor. Um, to where I would get an answer that. Plus, you're supposed to just you know walk it off, rub yeah. some dirt on it. That's right. We yep. don't we don't stop playing just because we, stop we have playing. a herniated disc. Yep, exactly. Right. And, and you know this is in the early 2000s. Um, I think we've come a long way with um, educating people on opiates uh, since then. But the next doctor I went to said, "Hey, we can give you an epidural in your back, and um, here's a prescription for tramadol." Mm-hmm. And the explanation I got about what tramadol was was that it is just like ibuprofen. Um, mm. Because back then, it wasn't even a controlled substance. Right. Um, so I could get a prescription that, you know, they'd write me a prescription for 200 pills. It's supposed to last me 30 days, but it'd have four refills on it. Wow. And pretty quick. That would never happen today. Never happened today. And I mean, it wasn't a controlled substance, so I wasn't running into issues with and the it, pharmacy. it is low on the opioid scale. It's one of the most minor medications for that, but it still is an opiate. Absolutely. And um, so for me, I remember the first time I was sitting in class, I'd been taking it for about, you know, two, three months regularly as prescribed. And I hadn't taken it that day. And I was sitting in class and I started to feel sick. And I remember the thought popped into my head of, man, are you getting addicted to this stuff? Because I didn't know. We never talked about addiction, but I just that kind of buzz term of am I getting addicted to this? And that thought quickly disappeared and, and it was replaced with, hey, just you need to go get some tramadol. And I went and took the tramadol and found the solution to the the sickness, the pain that I was feeling. And so throughout, a, you know, I, I played um, for four years, um, three years after that, and I had other injuries, hurt some knees and always had the bad back. And so I just continued to take these pills. And during that time, it wasn't an issue. 
you know, my wife was aware of it. I was getting them from doctors. Um, it wasn't an issue at all. I knew I was taking way more than I was supposed to. Um, I, I mean, really, I'd go through 500 tramadols easy a month. Wow. Um, I, was, I was taking handfuls of them at a time. And But you just stuck with the tramadol, or did you kind of go into other areas of the opioids, or was it just tramadol? Well, you know, as other injuries came up, I tore an MCL and hurt the other knee as well. And then I'd get the Laura tabs and I'd get Percocets. And now we're marching up that scale. Right? Exactly. Like potency. And, and just realizing I can take less of these and get better results. And at the time, I ju- just justified it like I need these. My back hurts. And I think, you know, we talk about like I, I'm a really common guy. Steve Smith, my name kind of says it all about me. And while, you know, I appreciate the introduction to saying my story it is, isn't common, I actually think it is very, very common. And that, that's what I've um, – so I've, I have three years clean and sober. Uh, March 28th, 2018 is my uh, clean date. But in the past three years, I've realized that there are so many people going through what I am going through. And they didn't start out taking these pills thinking, I want to get hooked on this stuff. They take them because they're in pain. And so I had back pain and doctors would prescribe them for me. And then when I was done playing football, I realized, wait a second, it's not quite as readily available because let's be honest, you know, there there are trainers and doctors whose job is to keep the product on the field. And so I was getting way more of this stuff prescribed to me than any doctor would prescribe to a normal person. But because you're a football player and because you wanted to be out there, yeah. they were just trying to patch you up and get you back out. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and I real quick learned what to say to doctors to get more medicine. I learned that that game. And for a while, I had a lot of resentment towards um, doctors and the, the medical um, industry as a whole. But looking back on it now, I realized I, I was manipulating the system. And they, they were just trying to do what they, they do, which is help people not be in pain. And so I learned how to, to work the system, graduate from college, come up here, have a, uh, come. I moved up to Layton, um, just a little bit north of Salt Lake City. And I, I'm still having back pain. So bad, it was keeping me up at night. And But at this point, you're not, uh, you don't have accessibility like you did when you were an athlete. Right. And so you go from taking close to 500 tramadol a month, and then you moved up to Percocet and Loratab. So what are you when you move back to Layton? How much are you taking? What does your usage look like? Still the same. I just had to get more creative. In you know, I started to. I, I learned how to kind of manipulate insurances. Um, I learned like when I'd go to a, a pharmacy and um, they say, "Oh, it's, your insurance won't cover it. It's an early refill." And so then I learned to go to different pharmacies and then say, hey, I'm a cash pay customer. I don't have insurance. Mm-hmm. And so I just learned the game more. Um, I learned to doctor shop. I learned to go to different doctors. And, um, and now at this point, do you know you're addicted? 100%. But how do you rationalize it in your head? I'm curious of that. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think the way I rationalize it was I'm in pain. I need this. My back hurts if I don't take something. the pain's not fake. The pain's not fake. You know, the MRI shows you have the injury and back pains. Holy cow. Those are chronic, miserable injuries for people to deal with. So it makes sense that you had something real. Right. And anytime a doctor would question me about uh, my usage, how much I was using, I, I just very happily say, let's take an MRI and look at it. And they'd look at it. And I remember one doctor told me I was probably 26 or 27. He said, hey, you have the back of a 60-year-old with a bad back. Wow. And that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Told you. Yep, told you. Hand me over my script. And this is why I'm taking so many. Mm -hmm. Because I've got the back of a 60-year-old with a bad back. So that just fueled your justification for continuing to Absolutely. I needed it. I'm in pain. And um, I learned my, my body was, more so than my back was hurting, my mind was telling my back to hurt so that I could go and get these pills. Um, then in 2009, um, I, and by the way, since my back was in pain, I also needed to take Ambien to sleep. I had to take muscle relaxers, Soma. So, you know, I've, I've got the opiates. I've got Soma, Ambien. And uh, in 2009, I had taken some Ambien. And I realized, hey, I like the, the way Ambien makes me feel even when I'm not going to sleep. As a matter of fact, I like it more um, when I take it and try and stay up. And so it, I can just tell you that I've heard the the 
the most bizarre stories from people on that drug. Ambien, when when you stay up on Ambien, the 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 most bizarre hallucinations and weird things happen. My friend people. was on Ambien. And uh, I asked him uh, probably two weeks after I found out I was taking. I was like, "So are you still doing that ambient?" And he goes, "No, my wife said I can't take it anymore." I go, "Why? What happened?" He goes, "I woke up the whole family at three in the morning and built a fort out of couch cushions and invited them to yeah. come sleep into it." Yeah, there's and something so, about for, yeah. for a lot so of like, people. My wife said I can't take it anymore. Yeah, yeah good call for her. Um, a lot of people like it's their motor cortex remains active, so they'll get up and make dinner, but they're not really awake or I guess build forts and. Yeah, yeah, it's it. It can be a tough medicine, but how did it make you feel? Why did you like trying to stay up on it? Yeah, I liked it because it just um, it made me not feel anything, and and I wouldn't remember it. I mean, it was like it was like I had just had a hard night of drinking, and I could take one tiny little pill. You know, it's interesting that he just said that because he goes, "It made me so I didn't feel anything," and towards the end when I was drinking. That's the reason I was drinking, just not to feel to anything. I didn't want to feel good. I didn't want to feel bad. I just didn't want to feel anything mm-hmm. because I, I I lost all emotion. I lost everything that was in me because it, it, I just couldn't do it anymore. So you just didn't want to feel anything. Yep. Didn't I want to have you stop anything. right there in the middle of your story for a second because during that time, you're still with your girlfriend and your wife. I mean, your, your girlfriend is your wife. Yep. I don't want, yeah. There, yep. there, there weren't two. Let's yeah, not. We don't want to get this guy in trouble. Yep. That might have been the other step. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm yeah. still married and um, have a few kids at that time. Yep. And so what is your wife saying at this point? Does she know it's as bad as it is? She's she's aware and my wife's a nurse. And so, um, but it was kind of the same excuse that I kept justifying to everyone. It was like, hey, I've got back pain. And I think an important part of this, of our story is we both told ourselves Hey, this is just going to go away someday. Like we'll wake up in the morning and magically it's going to go away. And we weren't telling anybody about it. Um, but in the meantime, so I took some Ambien and uh, I went and got in my car and was driving down I-15. Don't remember anything. What I do remember is my wife picking me up from jail and slapping me in the face after she had been looking for me for four or five hours, not knowing where I was at. Oh. And I remember sitting in the passenger seat of the car, walking out and turning around and seeing uh, my daughter, who was four years old, and the other one who was two years old, strapped in their their car seats in the middle of the night, uh, picking their dad up from jail that they'd been out driving around looking for for hours. And Mm -hmm. so at this point, this is when we came to the realization as, as a family, like, this is a problem. And it's it's more than just oh you're you know physically dependent on these pills, and so that's that's yeah, that's an oh nine, and that's was what, there a car accident involved? No How car accident involved. Jail? I guess um, I don't really don't remember much of anything of it. DUI, yeah, DUI, and I just remember I guess what happened. The cops were telling me afterwards that um, someone was following me on I fifteen, and I was all over the place and. I'm lucky that I didn't kill somebody or myself because mm-hmm. I I don't even remember getting in the car. Yeah, yeah, that is lucky. So glad they were able to stop you before. Absolutely, that and I guess the cops said they were behind me for a few minutes before I even acknowledged they were there. Yeah, so out of it. I, yeah, I was out of it, and I, I have zero recollection. I kind of remember like my shoulders hurting because they handcuffed me, and like I just pulled my arms back. I, I just very few vague memories. Um, of that. And I, I also, uh, they told me when they pulled me over, they couldn't believe that when I blew into the breathalyzer that I didn't have any alcohol in my breath. Oh, like yeah. they, they, they were blown away by that. So, um, at that point I start going to AA meetings. Um, you know, we're going to do something about it. Well, let, let's talk about like your wife for a second. So she's a nurse and I'll just say this with all the love in my heart for one of my best friends and my sister who are nurses. Nurses are tougher than doctors. Okay? Yeah. Like they're harder on you than doctors. They, they don't put up with crap. The doctors will sometimes try to appease you. But how did she did she change her attitude in how she was dealing with you at home? Because she's not just your wife. She's also a nurse. What what did that look like after? Yeah, after we, we tried her? the um, she would uh, monitor my medicine. Right. She was in control of, of giving me doses and things like that. Um, at that point, you know, we hadn't she hadn't started drug testing me yet. That came later. But she was. Um, and it's interesting talking to my wife now. She became 
addicted to my addiction. That was her addiction, was my addiction. She, she, I mean, she was better than the FBI, CIA put together. She just was obsessing and thinking about it all the time. All the time. Yeah. And trying to track everywhere I was going, everything I was doing. And so, and this is very interesting. In the meantime, from the outside perspective looking in, we have leadership positions in our church. I'm running an outdoor company, um, the president of the company, and things look great from the outside. On paper, you look amazing. Look amazing. Um, But on the inside, I remember really clearly – a lot of nights laying in bed and having this, it felt like my chest was getting crushed, this sense of impending doom that my world was about to crash down around me. And the thing that that is so sad and looking back at it is my wife and I both felt like we were the only people in the world going through this. Mm. And so we can't, we can't share. We can't talk about it. We didn't tell anyone what was going on in our house a lot of it had to do with our pride and our ego of keeping the appearances on the outside of everything's going great in the Smith household. Um, you know, I'm running a company, so we can't let anything like that uh, come to light. So we lived with this dark secret for it ended up being almost 15 years. Wow. And don't you think part of it's also not knowing who to talk to? I, I think that's changing in our culture. Um, I certainly get you know the the embarrassment factor the you don't want to kind of lose your status so to speak in the neighborhood and that's a real thing you don't want people to think poorly of you uh, people who aren't members of the LDS church uh, might be surprised to know that the church is typically run on the local level by just average members and so by given by being given a leadership calling that meant you were integral into every you know to the church experience for your neighbors uh, so they saw you as a leader, and that's important. Plus, you're also a business leader in the community, and wow, you don't want to threaten your livelihood. But I think part of it is also, even if you had felt like you could throw caution to the wind, did you know who to talk to back in those days? Would you have known where to go? No. Um, we didn't as a family. And my wife tell, tells me or told me that during that time, she was searching to try and find some sort of uh, resource to help her figure out how to deal with her husband who is falling apart um, and, and our home's falling apart. And for me, you know, I, I went and talked to my bishop, talked to him quite a bit. and Which I'm not knocking bishops around the world, but a lot of times the bishop is the bishop and, and that's his job in the church, but he might be a banker, he might be a landscaper. He's probably not the most equipped to deal with something like your substance abuse and everything that's going on. He's not an expert in you know, 100%. mental health or anything. He's doing the very best he could, but he was not an expert in this. And the, the tough thing, I just remember, um, you know, I believe in God and I believe that God can work miracles. And I'd seen it throughout my life and other people's lives. And so as I'd go and I'd sit down with this bishop and, you know, we'd talk about praying more, reading your scriptures more and, and doing those those things that were taught since we were little kids. You're like, I'm ready for a miracle. Ready Bring for a miracle. On. And after doing that for so many years and not seeing the miracle happen, I remember thinking, you know what? I know there's nothing wrong with God. I've seen miracles happen in other people's lives. It's really easy to see what the problem in this equation is. Me. What's the one constant? What me. And I came to this realization, um, or this was the outcome my mind came to was, hey, Steve, I know what's wrong with you. You are evil. You are bad. Mm-hmm. And because people, my wife had asked me that all the time. I was like, what is wrong with you? And I remember just thinking to myself, I have no idea, but I hate it more than you do. I And so coming to the that that conclusion of like, I'm just bad. That actually came as a relief to me of like, this is what's wrong with me. I'm a bad person. And things just got worse. Tell me how that's a relief to you, because for me, I'm concerned about that as a person takes that sort of self-blame, that negativity on themselves. But it it felt like a relief to you? Because it was an answer. Okay. It was an answer of some sort. Um, After so many years in my mind of like, what is wrong with me? Why am I making these decisions over and over of, of just having at least some sort of answer? Of like, you know, and today I look at it as like, I'll tell you exactly what's wrong with me is I'm an addict. But see, that makes total 
sense to me mm-hmm. is that I had those same kind of thoughts. It was like, why am I doing this? I mean, I know I'm not supposed to do it. I mean, we'd have those conversations in the mirror and I've, I'm not doing this. I know I'm not doing it, but then I would do it. And I would go, why? And then, you know, you come to the realization that I'm just, I'm broken. I'm, I'm not like everybody else. We're going to find out more about Steve in just a second. You're listening to Project Recovery. Now, Steve, I like what you said when you were asking yourself, what is wrong with me? And your first thought was, I'm evil. And then after some thought and figuring it out, you said, I know what's wrong with me. I'm an addict. Right. Once you accepted that you were an addict, did that help? Did that give you some resolution? 100% it did. But that realization, that true, deep realization and a self-understanding didn't come, I'd say, probably until a year into my sobriety. Of, of truly to the core of my existence of understanding and believing I'm an addict. And I think that, I think nowadays we can say that's a positive thing. Like at the very least it's neutral, if not positive, because it is an answer. It is a solution. It is, gives you knowledge that's empowering. If you can say I'm, I'm an addict, therefore, and, and you talk about what that means and, and it gives you some empowerment to make your life better and to change things. Where I get concerned is when people stay in that initial phase you were in, which is I'm evil or I'm bad. If you stay in there, then what happens? Well, generally for a lot of people, you struggle with that self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, bad people don't do good things, right? Yep. So if I'm a bad person and I really believe that about myself, how easy is it to continue to do bad or self-destructive sorts of things? It's pretty easy. So you have to change your mindset. Thoughts, feelings, behaviors, which I've brought up a lot on this show, is basically the pattern we all live by every day. How we think about things influences how we feel and what we end up doing. And so if my thought is I'm a bad person, then it's pretty easy to feel down and to do bad things or unproductive, however you want to think of it. But I like the idea, and I didn't used to like this. It's only been really since doing this show that I see the term an addict, I'm an addict, as a positive thing because it's like that explains so much about why you're struggling. It's not it's not because you're not smart. It's not because you you know you are a bad person. It's not because you want to you know implode or self destruct. It's because you have an addiction and that being an addict. Then now I I'm empowered with information and I can reach out and get help and work this through. Absolutely, and I think for me, what coming to that realization of like to my innermost self that I'm an addict, that now means there's a solution. And when I when I thought I was just evil or bad, and, and I, this came to me as you were talking about that, what that did for me was that made me feel okay about these other behaviors that I was doing, stealing money from my kids, going and meeting homeless people in parks to buy pills from them, uh, lying, uh, stealing, doing all these different kind of things. I guess... You know, in hindsight, looking at it, I was okay with it because, hey, I'm bad. I'm evil. Bad people do bad things, and there's your justification. Exactly. So let's get back to your story. So after the DUI and uh, you walking back to the car, seeing your young children in the back, uh, you start to attend some 12-step meetings. This is what, 2009, you said? Yep. 2009. How how did that go? Um, Terrible. I remember walking in there and at this point of – Looking around and seeing people with real sobriety and just thinking to myself, like, uh, one of two thoughts, like, wow, um, I'm glad my life isn't as bad as his. Mm-hmm. I, I'm glad I'm not as bad as his. And then also, this is before I came to the um, belief that, you know, what's wrong with me is I'm an addict. I would I'd go home and say stuff to my wife's like, hey, I hate that I have to, anytime I'm going to talk, that I have to say, hi, my name's Steve and I'm an alcoholic. I feel like I'm just labeling myself like that. I'm more than an alcoholic, you know? And so I'd look around the room and that experience changed over time. And it, um, this first go around, it didn't change for the positive. It changed to like, I'd see people who were happy and living in recovery and, and I'd be thrilled for them and think, man, that's great for you, but that's not going to work for a guy like me. I'm different. I'm different. I'm terminally unique. Yeah. <laughs> we like all it. think that. Terminally yep. unique. You know, everybody goes in there and goes, yeah. And I remember sitting there, it's like, I'm not one of you guys. Yep. Yep. And and uh, it just, you know, and that kind of fizzled out. So I did other outpatient programs and um, flunked out of those. 
And when I, you say flunked out, does that mean you kept using? Yep, kept using and literally got kicked out um, because you, I couldn't pass a drug test. Do you think that you're using ramped up after? Yeah. Your first initial stop? 100% it did. And, and what really ramped up my using was at that same time, um, I went to a Suboxone doctor. And I went, I, I'll never forget walking into the Suboxone doctor, my wife and I, and he's like, okay, we're going to get you on Suboxone and, and um, we'll have you off of this in four to six months. For those who don't know, what is Suboxone? So Suboxone is a, it's a, a drug they give you that can take someone that's addicted to heroin and it, it binds so strongly to your opioid receptors that it takes you from being addicted to heroin or whatever other opiate, and you basically become immediately addicted to that. And then it's a controlled uh, kind taper? of a controlled taper. So you start taking that, and that you then your doctor will wean you off of that. But for those, uh, Suboxone has been abused. Oh, I, mean, I, it, I abused it like crazy, and, oh. and that's that's one of the dilemmas about those sorts there are several medicines that can be used that way um if all goes according to plan it works well but the problem is it is just another drug to be abused and if a person isn't mentally i think ready to make the commitment to be sober uh then they just end up abusing those medications like suboxone so you walk in the doctor says we'll have you off in four to six months and you went yeah right oh at the time i'm thinking hey this is sounds great and then I take the Suboxone and I like how it feels. And so the, the biggest problem that I see with Suboxone is me, the guy taking it. Um, right. Because I'll remember, I, um, so you have to go in every 30 days. They don't give you refills on it. And I was supposed to be taking X amount for the first two weeks and then taper down and then after 30 days. And it was maybe a few months in that I'm back in the doctor's office after two weeks. And he'd given me a 30-day supply. And so, you know, I've become a professional at lying and manipulating these docs. And I remember I said, hey, my, I mean, listen to this really uh, genuine, unique excuse. My prescription got stolen. Oh. Yeah. You know, first One time, step above the dog ate it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and uh, he, I remember he said, okay. And he signed me off on an early refill. And I remember thinking like, does this guy not know who he's dealing with like <laughs> the reason i'm in his office is because i've become a no other doctors would write me prescriptions yeah. anymore i'm a master manipulator yeah and so uh fast forward two two and a half years um and my dosage that i was taking at the end of those two and a half years was higher than i started with and i was just abusing it like crazy so you actually were able to manipulate those folks into yep. increasing your dose over yep. time well instead of increasing decreasing. or or just uh i was consuming more and then, you know, the, um, I also, you know, had a story I couldn't sleep. So, um, or I mean, yeah, I, so I was so tired. So he'd give me new vigil pro vigil, mm -hmm. which is a, a neurotropic drug that I could stay up for, you know, days on end, zero sleep and you don't lose any cognitive, uh, it's terrible. But so I'd, you know, kind of just work the system out. So I had enough to get through that. And, um, I'll tell you, I, I got, I felt again, you know, resentment towards the system. And I tried to, I came off of Suboxone and I was sicker than I've ever been. And I'd been through some terrible withdrawals and, um, I, I thought I was going to die. I don't know what was going on. Um, but after like two or three nights of zero sleep, I'm laying downstairs middle of the night and my brain starts short circuiting. Um, it, like I couldn't think straight. It would jump all over. I don't know what it was happening, but, uh, I remember just thinking, um, I, I rolled off the, the couch on my knees and I said the most sincere prayer of my life. And I said, God, either kill me, let me die right now, or let me get some sleep. And I fell asleep. And so, you know, that, that's a real touching story if that's where it ended, but it didn't a few days later after being off Suboxone, I realized I was in a big bind because now I couldn't go back to my normal doctors and get other prescriptions because I'd been blacklisted. I can't go back to this Suboxone doctor. And this is where I started buying pills off the street. And that's where my usage got really bad. I was buying Oxycontins and Roxy's and Adderall and anything I could get my hands on off the end. You know, I was spending a hundred dollars a day at least on pills. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And th that's where my life um, really took a, a turn for the worse. It's been pretty interesting up to here. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, but that just goes to show you the addict brain and to what lengths somebody will go to get the fix, what they need to make themselves feel right. Well, how, I mean, we'll comment on Steve right in front of him, but like how sincere was Steve's face when he talked about turnaround and looking at his daughters in the back seat of the car? Like, I could tell that was just a crushing moment for you, yet the usage continues to go on. You're a very religious person. You believe in God. You pray for something. You actually get it right then. You get to sleep, and you get that relief, and a few days later, you're searching out, finding ways to use again. And so that is such, over time, in in people we've spoken to and that I've spoken to in private, that's such a self-esteem crusher. You start to really think poorly about yourself. Boy, I was I was given a miracle. I was able to sleep, and 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 I I do love my daughters. But why would I continue to use and and those things can crush your sense of self and who you are, uh, and that does go to show you how powerful an addiction is. It it takes over basically who you are. Where is your wife, nurse, when this is all going down? Um, at this point, she's just fed up with me. She's just really done, and life's kind of. She's trying to keep life going in the home because I, I'm not, you know, very productive around the house. I, I think back to the Christmas before I went into rehab, like the month of December, I spent, and this is where addiction leads as far as the isolation and, and just loneliness. I spent the whole month. I had an enclosed trailer in my driveway, and my excuse was I was going to build my kids a go kart for Christmas. So I spent. Every minute I was home, out in the trailer in the driveway, using drugs. That's how that's how my kids' Christmas went with dad. Um, I just wasn't around, and you know, it just it kind of. Meanwhile, like um, I had changed jobs, and um, I, I was running out of resources because hundred dollars a day is really quick. While I was making good money, um, it was getting spent even quicker. I'd, I'd maxed a lot out of credit money cards. Every month, yeah. Absolutely. And so um, this is where things like I remember my little daughter, um, she had made $100 and worked really hard and earned it. And um, I didn't have any money and I was out and I was starting to get dope sick. And I went and I, and I stole that $100 from her um, out of her wallet. And then I put her wallet behind her dresser and went and bought drugs with it. And, and in my mind, that that was worse than anything I could have done. Like it felt like just unforgivable sin of, of something I'd done. And, you know, I told her some story, someone must've come into our house and stole it, you know, just lying. And I was so tired and, you know, um, kind of where I hit my rock bottom was, um, I was at a new company and I was being really successful and I was in sales in the outdoor industry. And I had this problem where I was making a lot of money, but I had no money. And so I went and I used the company credit card to buy a Visa gift card from Lowe's, a $200 gift card from Lowe's and went and bought drugs with that. And the really interesting thing is, is I knew when I was doing that, I was like, I'm going to get caught on this. Like I, I just had this, that thought come to my head, but I didn't care because I needed drugs. I didn't care. And so, um, you know, it wasn't something immediate, but I went and did it and got my drugs. It worked out fine. And then a few weeks later, my boss is like, Hey, we need a receipt for this. Um, which wasn't like, you know, a big question. And so I was running around. I told him I'd have it to him the next morning. And I was, um, I was going to get an old receipt and edit it and go through all this stuff. And I just remember thinking like, I'm done. Like, I'm, I'm just so tired, you know, rather than being at home with my family in the evening or, or doing something uh, that I enjoy, I was out in uh, Lowe's parking lot trying to figure out how to manipulate a receipt, look things up online. And I just said, I'm just going to go tell him. Um, and so the next morning I went in and I, I told my boss, um, what I had done and that I'd lied to him about it. And, uh, he said, all right, well, uh, this is like 10 AM. He's like, uh, let's meet back here at one o'clock this afternoon. So I go back in his office at one o'clock and the CEO sitting there and I see a, a sticky note that says transition of accounts. And I knew exactly what that meant. And, um, they, they fired me. And, um, I lost it. I mean, I I'm there in my boss's office. Cause I knew like in my mind, I thought, you know, I know I'm not providing anything else, any value to my family, but at least I'm bringing home a paycheck. 
And so in my mind, when I go home and tell my wife that I've just been fired from my job, that's going to be the last straw and she's going to kick me out the front door. And I wouldn't have blamed her. Um, and so I just, I was like, I was in my boss's office, like inconsolable, crying my eyes out and they were concerned about me. And, and I, today I have a great relationship with both of these guys and I'm so grateful that they did the right thing and fired me. Um, but at the time I just, it felt like life was over at that point. Well, it, it obviously the way you were thinking, it felt like the end of your world. Absolutely. Yeah, it felt like it just was over. And so I and remember- see what I heard was that that's the last thing of value that he brought to life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, and I, you know, back to my comment earlier, I think that's what chronic drug addiction or alcohol addiction does to a person. It destroys your sense of self. And by this point in your life, you were feeling like the only worth I had to my family was the paycheck. And once that goes away, I'm worthless. And and and. It's crazy what our mind will manipulate us to do because I don't know your daughter, but I'm assuming if you went and sat her down and said, hey, daddy needs this hundred bucks, she'd have probably given it to you. Without question. Without question. And, you know, since that time, um, I actually have made an amends with her and I um, had a hundred dollars and and for some reason, I just barely did it. and we were driving in the car and I pulled out a hundred dollars and I said, Millie, I said, um, I stole this money from you. And I said, and she's like, dad, that was so long ago. And, and it was so interesting. She wasn't surprised. She had known, she had known where her money had gone. And she just, she said, you don't need to do that, dad. And I said, no, I do. I, I do need to do it for me. I need to make an amends to you. And here, here's this hundred dollars that I stole from you. And, um, it was something that had just, it had haunted me. It had haunted sure. me. Like I just, I couldn't live with myself. I could, you know, live with a, a meth or heroin addict in my car that I'm driving around to different parks and going to places. I could live with that kind of stuff. Um, but I couldn't live with the fact that I had stooped to such a low that I would steal a hundred dollars that my daughter had worked so hard for. Um, but, you know, so um, back to when I got fired, I, drive around for the rest of the afternoon and I went in a parking lot and just cried. I, I, I just have never cried like this before. And then I pulled myself together and, and drive back in my house, just like I'd just come home from work. And, um, I couldn't, I had this plan. I was going to tell my wife and then all the kids were around. So I acted like nothing had happened. Um, but the next morning when my wife was taking the kids to school and I wasn't leaving for work, um, I said to her right before she walked out the door, I said, I said, Hey, um, when you get back, I have something I need to tell you. And she said, okay. And she got back home and I I told her, I said, Hey, I I lost my job yesterday. I got fired. And she, without skipping a beat, she said, you know what this means, right? And at that time I, I, I thought it meant, yeah, I've got to pack my bags and get out of here. And she said, you need to go get some real help. Um, and you need to have some inpatient treatment. And to me at that time, I was so beat. I was so destroyed and in a place where I didn't feel like I'd ever be able to live a day without taking something. Um, I just, I didn't that, um, I was willing to go and do that as sounded better to me than living in a tent somewhere. And so, you know, that's where our journey started back towards the end of March in 2018 of, of looking for different rehab treatment centers to go to. And, um, we found a place uh, that had offered two months in uh, in-house residential treatment. And I remember waking up the morning, I, I went in on a Tuesday and they, they actually asked me, they said, when I was, we went around and toured the facilities Monday and they said to me, they said the facility, Hey, would you, do you want to come in tomorrow or Wednesday? And I said, tomorrow, like, <laughs> like if you could take me right now, take me now because I didn't know what a day on my hands would lead to. Um, so, but that morning I'm laying in bed, I woke up at like 5 a.m. And I, I, I don't know how to explain it. I felt dead, but I knew I wasn't because I was still breathing. And I, I've never felt so empty and hollow inside. And um, I just, I, life was over as I knew it. And I felt like I was going down to the, you know, the state penitentiary and I was on death sentence. But little did I know. I mean, that was just the beginning. So you check in on a Tuesday for a two-month uh, inpatient rehab. Yep. 
Yep. And, um, you know, I remember I've got high on the way to rehab. And that was the only way I knew how to deal with anything at that point. I had to get high and my, my wife was okay with it at that point. You know, she'd lived with me for 15 years and I, I check into a, it's an all men's treatment facility and I was there for, um, two months. And during that time, I, I just, um, yeah, I remember I had a therapist that said to me, and I'd been there maybe three or four days and he, he looked at me in the eye and he said, Steve, you know, you never have to use drugs again if you don't want to. And for some reason I believed him. I didn't, I didn't necessarily like buy into it 100%, but I remember there being a little bit of hope of like, maybe he's right. Maybe I don't ever have to again. And, um, so I did the two full months in treatment and then I moved into a sober living facility and was there for four year or four years, felt like four years, four months. (laughs) And I did a nine month outpatient treatment. And so I was in treatment total for almost a year. Um, I was introduced to AA. I love AA. I still attend AA meetings every week. Um, and, and the cool thing looking back on at that time of where that was the end in my mind, that was really just the beginning. And uh, if I would have written down that first day in rehab exactly what I wanted my life to look like today, so three years, fast forward, I would have sold myself way short, hmm. way short. Um, and going from a mindset of thinking I can't live a day um, without taking drugs to the level of gratitude I have for every day, like. And looking back on it, all I ever wanted in using was to wake up in the morning and just feel okay. I didn't want to feel great. I didn't need to feel amazing. I just wanted to feel okay. And thank God that every day in recovery um, and in my life today, I can wake up and feel okay. And, and I can go through hard things and still be okay. Yeah, just I think that's important for the listeners to really – pause and think about like when you're in your addiction, you're just trying to get to, okay. It's a battle to get to the place where you could just wake up at any day in your sobriety, but, but you're, you're behind the eight ball every single morning when you wake up. Yep. Absolutely. So what does recovery look like for you and your family? Yeah. And I think this is um, one part of my story that is pretty unique. Um, My whole family's in recovery today. So over those 15 years, I've had uh, three more kids. So I have five kids. Um, my wife, has she goes to Al-Anon meetings. My kids go to Alateen meetings. We have uh, little AA meetings as a family. Um, we're open. We're honest with people. Uh, so we just moved to a, a new neighborhood, a new house. And I had one of my friends from my old area come over and he said, hey, so when you get up and give your... Uh, introduction talk in church, are you going to tell your story? Because since then we've been open and honest and and sharing this with, with everybody. Um, I looked at him and and at first inside, I wanted to think, Oh, maybe we don't want to tell us the new neighborhood. You know, we we don't want to lead with this. Yeah. We don't want to lead with this. And then I thought to myself, wait a second, what message is that sending to my kids? Hey, we're going to a newer, nicer neighborhood. Um, here, let's not talk about our problems at home in the old neighborhood. That was okay. Here, we don't do that. And I said to him, I said, I have to. We have to. And so my wife and I got up and we told our story. Um, My wife told her side and what she went through and that she was suffering in silence for all those years. Um, I told my side of the story. And it's amazing um, the reception that we've received. And and people, uh, I mean, a line of people came up to us afterwards and wanted to talk to us. And so in the last three years, it's amazing how many people have reached out to us and said, hey, um, my husband uh, is struggling w- with this or I'm struggling with addiction. Um, we, I just talked to someone on the phone last week. It was a friend of a friend's brother um, that you know needed to try and get some guidance on how to do this. And, and Talk to somebody who might understand. I do the same phone calls yep. and I'm always happy to pick it up. Because as an addict, that's what you want. Because you'll talk to somebody who has, doesn't have an addiction and go, you don't get it. And mm-hmm. you know what? To be honest, you don't. Right. You know, because, but you want to talk to somebody who's been where you are and is where you want to be and go, how did you do it? You're telling me that I can live a day where I never have to take a drug or a drink again? Because that sounds like 
bullcrap. Yep. Totally yeah. impossible. I mean, Casey, how, how amazing is it? Like, it's a miracle that you and I, an alcoholic and an addict, are sitting here in a public forum uh-huh. telling these secrets that we carried around with us for years and that we both know this is the best thing we could be doing right now to stay sober tomorrow. It's it's an absolutely wonderful, amazing feeling. Last night when I was talking to you on the phone, you said something that your daughter said to you, or I think it was your son. Yeah. Tell me that story. Yeah, so um, it was my little boy, Michael. He's seven years old now, almost eight, so he was four when I went into treatment. And um, he loves to, to share um, his experience of how hard it was on him um, when I was in rehab. But we were sitting around. I had picked up my three-year AA chip, and we were, as a family, we were talking about let, let's let's discuss what have we learned over the past three years. And um, you know, we kind of all shared our little different things. And my little boy, seven years old, he said, "You know, Dad, I know it was really hard for you to stop taking these pills, but you should try being the one worrying about you." Oh man. I mean, I got chills. Yeah, I bet. But that's that hits you hard as a dad. The power of addiction. Yep. That's what we don't understand uh, when we say, "I'm just doing it to myself." What? What do I? What do you care? It's a family it's disease, hundred percent. Yeah, that's that's powerful. What did? What, how did you respond to your boy? Um, I gave him a hug. Yeah. I, I, you know, at that point. Um, I, I don't think, and, and that's the cool thing for me as a dad and a husband today, you know, the mindset of all at the only value and worth that I bring to this family is a paycheck when I was in my active addiction to today, the biggest thing I can do for my wife and kids is simply be there for them. Right. And I, I can give them a little hug and let them know like, Hey buddy, like I understand and, and I'm here for you. And, and that's, um, possible today. And, and that to me is so cool that, uh, you know, I, I look back in, uh, about your let, uh, letter, her name's Presley, mm-hmm. and um, I'm sitting there just an average listener, and I was listening to it during the workday, and I'm crying my eyes out. Um, and I'm thinking, how neat is it now that that little girl, because even though she's older, she's still your little girl, is able to sit there and look at her dad and what he's doing with something really hard. Something really difficult, probably the most difficult thing he's ever been through in his life and how he's using that to help and strengthen other people. To me, that's what's amazing about being in recovery and why today I'm I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be an addict and be in recovery um, and, and just how many people are out there suffering in silence. I know there are just so many families, so many individuals out there that felt just like I did, that like I am the only one. I'm broken. I'm evil. Nobody understands. Yep. But because of podcasts like this and the recovery world and everything we're doing, we're helping lessen that stigma and helping people know that it's okay, that there is help and recovery is possible. And that sharing your story and reaching out, making that connection that we talk about so much, uh, that is a powerful thing. Your power to connect with other people uh, runs deep when you are honest and authentic, and that changes lives right there. So I want to say thank you to Steve for stopping by. Dr. Matt, always a pleasure hanging out with you for an hour once a week. Really does do my heart good. And uh, as I was walking in here to the building this morning with uh, Steve, I said, you know, this is the way that I give back. This is the way that I help. And if for some reason I wasn't ever, ever able to do this podcast, I would have to find another way to be of service because that's what really keeps most addicts on the straight and narrow is picking up that phone, helping out others. So do me a favor today. If you know somebody who's struggling, it might seem insignificant, but pick up the phone, give them a call, send them a text, let them know you're there and that there is help. So thanks for stopping by. This is Project Recovery brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. And don't forget, Project Recovery is a KSL podcast.
The contents of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.